Well, hey, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing this morning? It's a little chilly outside, isn't it? Can we just give a clap to the Lord? Jesus is good. Amen. Um, before we begin, I felt like the Lord gave me a word, and, and here's what I'm going to ask. Um, can I get everybody to stand back up real quick, just trying to be obedient to what I feel like the Lord's calling us to do? If you need a word from the Lord today, and let me explain what I mean by that. If, if you're in need of hearing from God, maybe it's a decision that you need to make in your life, maybe it's in regards to your marriage, to health. If you need the Lord to speak into something, would you just raise your hand with me real quickly? Keep your hand up, and if you want to, if you have somebody around you whose hand is raised, if you want to either, one, put your hand on them, uh, or two, extend a hand towards them. Some people are like, don't touch me. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I just want to pray over you right now. Holy Spirit, you know that there are people here this morning who need to hear from you. There are people here who are seeking for wisdom for health issues. There are people here who are seeking wisdom for jobs and in their marriage and, and just what's next. And so, Holy Spirit, we know that you speak. We know that the word of God is living and active. God, may I get out of the way so that your word might be heard clearly. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, Lord. We pray against lies that have been spoken over people's lives, lies that are carrying. We also, God, we pray specifically um, over health conditions that are robbing people of joy. Lord, we ask for healing in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Thank you. You guys may be seated. Well, hey, um, if this is your first time with us this morning, uh, maybe you're visiting from out of town. Uh, maybe you're just here because it's Clear Lake in the summer, which can I just say we have such a great place to live. Though you wouldn't know by the weather, I promise if this is your first time, this is not normally what Clear Lake is like. Um, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. And on behalf of our staff, our leaders, and all who call this place home, we want to thank you for coming. If you're looking for a spiritual community, um, if you're looking for a place to call home, we hope that you'll consider being a part of what God is doing here at Zion. God's doing some pretty remarkable things, amen? It's been super fun to see how God has moved over the summer. Um, we started in our summer series called This Is How I Fight. And our summer series is a, a dedicated to helping us better understand the world we live in and the battle raging in the unseen, invisible world around us that the authors of the Bible call the heavenly realm. Now, it's no coincidence that as soon as we started this series, some of you started experiencing spiritual warfare. I'll tell you as a church, we did, I did, my family did. And here's the thing. Here's what I know about the enemy, Satan, is Satan wants to do everything possible to distract us, to move us away from what God is doing. And so I want to thank you for those who chose to be here this morning. Um, if you've missed any part of the series, I would encourage you to go online onto Zion's website or to download the Zion app and get a chance to hear some of the messages and the things that God has done. The consistent theme that I've heard from so many of you is that the timing of this message wasn't coincidental because I believe the Holy Spirit knows better than we do. Amen? And, and so I'm grateful for how God has moved. Um, this morning after the message, we're going to head down to the lake to partake in something truly incredible. And in the midst of that, what we're doing is we're doing baptism in the lake. 
Now, here's what I want to encourage you. I know it's a little chilly out, and I know the temptation is for some of you, as soon as service is done, is to bail and get out of here. I totally get that. But I, I hope you'll stick around and be a part of the things that God is doing. Because here's the thing. Baptism is not just symbolic. It's not something we just simply do uh, because, hey, it, it's an outward expression. That's part of the truth. The reality is, is that we believe that baptism actually does something in us, that the Holy Spirit works through the waters of baptism. Now, why is this important? Especially in light of the whole conversation on spiritual warfare, here at Zion, we believe in what are called sacraments. Now, let me kind of explain what a sacrament is and help you understand why they're so important. Now, there are two primary sacraments for us as Lutherans. A sacrament is a sacred ritual in which we believe through the Holy Spirit God does something supernatural in the life of a person. But he does this by working through something natural. That what makes a sacrament holy is that God takes something that's ordinary, something like water, and through the Holy Spirit, God does something in the water, something supernatural. So when someone is baptized... We believe God moves, God acts upon people. And as we go down to the water, we believe God is with us in the water. Can I get an amen? Now, another sacrament that we do is what's called the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is where God takes the element of the bread and the wine, and it does not literally become the body and blood of Jesus, but rather the Holy Spirit in Acts does something to those elements to nourish the soul of a person. And what this does for us as believers in Christ, we have to realize that it's not what we do, it's what God does. We don't earn salvation. We can't, we can't do something that makes God go, oh, you're deserving. No, it is truly a gift from the Lord. And that's the beauty of baptism, that God does something in the water that when we place our faith, our hope, and trust in what Jesus did on the cross, that when we are baptized, something supernatural happens. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When we enter into the waters of baptism, Jesus died for us. And as we walk into the water, now I want you to think about this. Does it take effort to walk out into the water? Yes, there's resistance. It's hard. But that effort isn't what leads to salvation, that effort, it, it does require something of us. And when we go into the waters, we believe that Jesus died for our sins. He took the punishment meant for us. But then on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. Now, here's what God does through the waters of baptism. And if you've never been baptized, I want you to hear this. First, when we go into the waters, we're baptized with Jesus. We die with Christ. Who we were before, our old self, our old sin, all that stuff 
is left in the water. The Bible tells us that baptism washes away our sin. Some of you here are carrying regret and shame, maybe things from addiction or an affair. Maybe there are sins that you're carrying with you. When you enter into the waters of baptism, all of that sin is taken into the water when you go under. And when you come out of the water, you are raised to new life. What, the, what Jesus calls in the gospel of John, you are born again, made new. But it's not just that that takes place. Not only are you washed of sin, not only are you made new and born again, you are also united with Christ. Your identity shifts in the waters of baptism. That when Jesus looks at you, when the Father looks at you, when the Holy Spirit looks at you, he seals you, he sees you sealed in Jesus. You are now part of a royal heavenly family. Now, through the waters of baptism, we declare before all creation. Now, here's why this matters. When you step into that water, you are making a declaration, including to Satan and his minions and to all the world that you belong, believe in, and want to become like Jesus. Baptism is important to the life of the believer. This is why the Jesus and the authors of the Bible don't just recommend, they don't strongly say, hey, if you feel like it, you should get baptized. They don't just encourage it. It's actually commanded as part of the vital life of being a Christian. Now, here's the part that we do a little bit differently. How many of you were baptized as an infant? Raise your hand. Did you know that your baptism as an infant mattered to God? God did something. That's the whole reason why we baptize children. It's not about what we do. It's about what God does, right? However, I do know individuals who are like, Jason, I've not been living for, G for Jesus, or I want to make a declaration. I want the Lord to do something. I want it to be part of my choice, not to be saved, but to recognize what God has done. So people do what's called the reaffirmation of baptism. They're not being rebaptized as if the first baptism didn't matter. No, it absolutely did. Instead, what it is, is there are people who say, Jason, I need a fresh start, and I believe that fresh start becomes with Jesus, and they choose to go in the water again. Here's why I say that. This morning, if you didn't sign up, and as you're hearing from the Lord, if you're like, you know what? I need a new start. The waters of baptism are there for you today. Anybody is welcome into the water if you're willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Don't just do it because it's a religious act or a spiritual act. Do it because you're putting your faith in Jesus. Amen? So, as we look at this, we're reminded that the Bible tells us to repent and be baptized and you will be saved. Now, here's the best part. It almost feels like this whole series, all summer long, could have been leading up to this moment for some of you. Some of you have been coming week after week and hearing what God is doing and you've been feeling that pull in your life. You've been sensing that God wants to do something that you are, God is rebuilding or restoring or redeeming something. God wants to meet you in the water. Last week, we talked about how when the believer, when the church comes together and brings worthiness, worship, to the Lord when it is directed at Jesus, it is a direct frontal assault and attack on the enemy. 
that when we not only sing, because singing is important, it's all throughout the Bible, singing is part of what it means to worship, but when we ascribe ultimate worth to Jesus, that it is a reminder to Satan that God's coming after him, that Jesus is worthy of worship. And now here's why this matters. Satan's primary strategy, his main objective, if you will, is to redirect our worship away from Jesus that we would begin to think about ourselves, our circumstances, or anything else, anything other than Jesus. This is why worship is so important, because when we choose to worship, to give ultimate worth, to ascribe value, our identity, everything shifted towards Jesus, you are literally striking at the heart of the enemy's encampment. Everything he does is about trying to redirect our worship. Worship is not just something we do for a few songs. It is something we do every second of every moment of every day. I've said this before. All songs are worship songs. Whether you're singing Pour Some Sugar on Me from Def Leppard <laughs> or Sir Mix-a-Lot, Baby Got Back, everything is a worship song. It's just who or what are you worshiping? Every decision you make is an act of worship. Are you worshiping food, money, health? Are you worshiping fame? Are you worshiping comfort? Everything is worship. And therefore, we must choose. And hear this. It is a choice. We must daily choose to say, God, I fight. I struggle. I wrestle. I do everything I can. I want you to be the object of my worship. And when we do that, Satan hates it. In our worship and praise, it is a strategic, a strategic attack at what God is doing. Now, here's the question. Imagine what it would look like if you could begin to not only attack the enemy at his home base, but how many of you would love to learn how to undo the damage the enemy has done in your life? Raise your hand. If, if that's you, I hope all of us would want to do that. I think all Christians, even if you're not a Christian, there are people here today who are exploring. We all have seen damage in our life. And this morning, I want to show you, according to Scripture, how we can undo the devil's schemes, his strategies in our life. And the Bible tells us it's possible. Now, when I say undo, what I mean is it doesn't mean if you've sinned, that sin is all of a sudden there's no consequences. That's the hardest part about sin, isn't it? When I do something, there's earthly consequences. But there are things that you can do according to God's word that will begin to dismantle the work of the enemy in your life and in your marriage and in the world around you. And the Bible's pretty clear on how we do it. And so what does that look like? Well, last week we talked about several different words that we use to describe spiritual warfare. And I think these words are important. They're there for a reason. Words like battle, wrestling, struggling, fighting, war, enemies, schemes, strongholds. The harsh reality about war is that warfare is destructive and always leaves casualties. The reason why we must take spiritual warfare seriously is because plain and simple, it's war. There is a war going on in your life. And even though that war begins in the spiritual world, it plays out in the physical world. It plays out in your health. It plays out in your marriage and in your finances. 
The Bible tells us that sin separates us from God, but let's not forget, it also has a devastating impact on the world and lives of people around us. Sin doesn't just impact you, it impacts people around you. If you have your Bible or the Zion app or the Facebook page or whatever else you would like to turn to, if you would stand with me, we're going to read our text for this morning. It's found in Romans chapter 12. Again, I'll give you a moment if you want to find it on your Bible gateway or at Zion's Facebook page or anywhere else. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, and then 9 through 21. Now, I want to, I want to everybody buckle up. Ready? Buckle up. Literally buckle up. Here we go. We're going to read some scripture this morning. And some of you are like, Jason, that's a lot of scripture. Yes, because guess what? It's not my words that bring life. It's God's word. And so we're going to take some time to let God's words speak to us. Romans 12, 1 through 2, and then verses 9 through 21. If you have it and you are able to read out with me, would you read aloud with me? If not, listen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord, praise be to God. You guys did it. Way to go. All right, let's have a seat. Some of you have heard these verses before. Now, I want to reiterate the reason why we read God's word out loud, the reason why we stand for God's word is that we take the words of the Bible seriously. So when the Bible tells us that God's word is like a double-edged sword cutting through bone marrow and spirit to the heart of man, when the Bible tells us that God's word does not return void, when the Bible tells us that God's word is inspired, given to us by the Holy Spirit through human beings to help us grow and mature and bring correctness into the life of the believer. We believe it. And I, here's why this is important. A sermon can be great, 
But if it does not have God's word, it is just human wisdom. We must live by God's word. My job as a pastor, as a teacher, as a preacher is not to leave golden nuggets for you to go, wow, Jason, look at that was so cool. My job is to point you back to scripture, to point you back to the author of life because we believe it is the word of God that moves in us. And if all of this is actually true, which I believe it is, then we must look to God's word for how to dismantle the enemy's lies, but also restore and rebuild what sin has torn down. When I first got saved, I, got, I was super excited. I remember I, had, I was going into my freshman year of high school, and my whole world, my whole perspective on everything changed in an instant. Now, let's not mistake excitement for maturity or even healthiness. I, I was very immature and I was pretty unhealthy in a lot of my areas, but I was very excited. That night, I did what so many of you of here have done. I asked Jesus into my heart. Now, I remember that night and I didn't fully understand what I was asking for. So when my youth pastor asked if anyone wanted to accept Jesus into their heart that night, to raise their hand, and then we prayed this thing called the sinner's prayer. How many of you have a similar story or at some point know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. A couple of you. How many of you came out of the womb saying hallelujah? Like that's all you've known is Jesus, right? For those like me who were not raised in the church, there was this moment. We call it a saved by date as if it's like a piece of meat or something. I don't know. That night began the wildest, most rewarding and difficult journey of my life. Here I stand 34 years later, and I still believe that that night was the most impactful moment of my life. And yet here's the thing. The hardest part of following Jesus was not that night. It felt that way. It really did. Beginning that journey felt really tough. There was struggle. Some of you have been wrestling with whether or not you want to trust Jesus, and I get it. But that was not the hardest night of my life. That night, I simply did what Paul tells us in Romans. I declared with my mouth that Jesus was Lord, and I believed in my heart that God raised him from the dead, and God did something. I was saved. The real struggle didn't happen that night in 1989. The real struggle came afterwards. See, no one prepared me for where the real hard work would be. The real difficult work was not in the night to choose to follow Jesus and give him my heart. The real work was the next 34 years of learning and trying to surrender the rest of me to Jesus. So I was like, yeah, Jesus, here's my heart, but can I keep my hands? Can I keep my feet? See, that's where the real struggle has been. For 34 years, I have been wrestling with God to surrender the rest of me to Jesus. And that matters because it felt like that the hardest thing for me to do was to give my heart and say, no, every decision is yours. But what the real battle began was surrendering the, left, the rest of me. And I know that is the case for some of you because I've talked to many of you who talk about the struggles in your life. Now, part of the difficulty, and this is the truth, and, and I have to extend an apology, 
Part of the problem is this, is that our understanding of what it means to be a Christian is kind of anemic and malnourished in the church. We spend so much time trying to get people to want to love Jesus that we forget to help them learn to live for Jesus. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? And isn't that where the real battle is? Like every, most of the people here who are Christian, you love Jesus. You want to follow Jesus. It's way harder to actually do it, isn't it? And this is why, in my opinion, I think what the Bible tells us is that what the enemy wants to do, where the enemy does most of the fighting, is not in trying to get you to sin. It's actually trying to get you to do nothing at all. That's actually where the enemy works overtime. The enemy wants to move you to nothing, to apathy, to disobedience. But what we tend to focus on is that, well, Satan wants me to sin. He wants me to do this thing. And, and don't get me wrong, that is partly true. But I really believe his greatest strategy is in trying to get Christians to do nothing at all. To not move in obedience, to not actually do the things God has called us to do. And I'm not just talking about sin. All right, so parents, you'll relate to this. When I tell my children, clean your room and do the dishes, and my children say, okay, that's not the same thing as actually cleaning your room and doing the dishes. Can I get an amen? amen. Until my children actually get up and clean their room and do the dishes, they're in disobedience. And here's what happens for so many of us, so many of you in the church, is you think that to obey God just means staying away from sin. That is not the case. See, yes, God wants us to live moral, upright, ethical lives. We need to be different than the world. God calls us to be a light in the world. But what if, what if obedience is less about sin management and allowing God to speak into our everyday moments and actions to live the way Jesus called us to? I want you to think about how different the world lo would look if every person here today, instead of just trying to avoid sin, actually asked this question, Lord, what would you have me do today? How would you have me love my neighbor? When you're at Walmart or Menards or driving down the road, when somebody cuts you off, how can I respond differently? What if obedience is less about sin and more about listening. Now, if this is Satan's greatest tactic, which I believe it is, that means Satan is working overtime to convince you to inaction. That if he can distract you long enough so that when the Lord says do this, you simply don't listen. You didn't sin in the sense that you did something bad. You just didn't move where God asked you to. And I think if we're honest today, a case could be made that the enemy is winning the battle in a lot of your lives because you're not listening. Satan has got a hold of you in moving to inaction. There's a leadership illustration that I like to use. Um, 
How many of you guys have ever seen those rowing teams where there are a bunch of people sit in a big boat and they're all rowing in the same direction? You guys know what I'm talking about? Rowing, right? Okay. So I used to think that the most dangerous person in the boat was the person rowing against you. That the person who is clearly not rowing in the same direction, I used to believe that was the most dangerous person. I have since believed this. The most dangerous person is not the one rowing against you because at least you know where they stand. The real danger is the person whose row, whose oar is doing nothing at all. Because you don't know, are they for you? Are they against you? Are they in the mission? Are they on the team? You don't know where they stand. See, when Satan moves us to inaction, what he's really doing is he's going into a half-truth. Satan is the king of half-truths, but here's the problem. A half-truth is a whole lie. Now, I, I, I hope you're ready for what I'm about ready to say next, and some of you immediately are going to go, that dude's a heretic. I promise I'm not, but that thought might come to mind. I want to say something that is meant to be shocking, but it's true. I'm not just saying it for shock value, but it's a lie that is a half-truth that so many of us have bought into in the church. Okay, are you guys ready for this? I need you to put your listening ears on. Here we go. Ready? Here is the half truth, the whole lie that the enemy has brought into the church. That the only goal of Christianity is to believe in and have a personal relationship with Jesus so you can be forgiven and go to heaven. That's a half truth. Now, some of you are like, wait, what? No, Jason, I thought that was the goal is to confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and we'll be saved. I thought that was the goal. No, that's part of the goal. And here's what's happened in the church. We've spent so much time trying to get people to believe that we've wrongly taught people. I have wrongly taught some of you that the only thing you need to do is just have a personal relationship with Jesus. Notice that keyword, personal. And that that's the object of your faith. Why is this so dangerous? Now remember what I said. Satan is the king of half-truths. I 100% believe that we are saved by faith, by placing our faith in the work that Jesus did on the cross. I also 100% believe that a healthy, vibrant Christian faith means having a relationship with Jesus. But here is the problem. For many of you, that's as far as it goes. You made a prayer, you said, I love you, Jesus, and nothing else has happened. And that's not completely your fault because this is how we gauge spiritual maturity in the church today. This is what it is. You guys ready? It's a checklist. Here we go. First, accept Jesus into your heart. Check. Maybe pray a prayer saying something like, I'm sorry for what I've done. Check. Get baptized. Check. Go to church when you can or feel like it. Check. Get a Bible. Check. Pray. Have a quiet time with Jesus, maybe with a cup of coffee and a perfectly placed photo on Instagram with the caption, my morning view with Jesus. Check, check, and check. Be a good person. Sin less. Check. Give to the church. Check. Did I already say go to church? I did. Okay. Check. Here's the problem. Christianity is not a checklist. Following Jesus is not a checklist. 
Now, don't get me wrong. Every single thing I said there, except for maybe the Instagram post with the coffee, every coffee's from the devil, I'm just saying. And immediately some of you are like, heretic, burn him at the stake, right? I'm already hearing it from some of you. All of these things are good. I once had a conversation with a friend. And this is how it went. We were talking about faith in Jesus. And he said, Jason, here's the problem. Is you take this Jesus thing way too seriously. He then said, I'm very spiritual. P.S. Whenever somebody says the words I'm spiritual, I already know we're not talking about the same thing. He, he said, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's between me and him. He's there for me when I need him. I know I'm good because faith is a private matter. Now, I've actually had this conversation numerous times with many people who go to church or people who are say they're Christian. And here's the best part. I don't get to determine if anybody's a Christian or not. That's between them and the Lord. Remember I said half-truth. The greatest evidence according to Jesus that a person actually has faith in them, in him, is action. That is the greatest evidence according to Jesus. It is not a feeling. It's not a personal relationship. The greatest evidence of faith in Jesus is faith in action. Listen to what Jesus said in John. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Notice what he didn't say in there. Anybody who loves me will do devotions. Anybody who loves me will say a sinner's prayer and say they love me. How does Jesus define real love? Action. Obedience. It starts with faith. But the evidence of faith, according to the book of James, is faith in action. It's faith through our deeds. The late Dallas Willard wrote this. If you preach a gospel that has only to do with the forgiveness of sins, on the other hand, you will be as you are today. Stuck in a position where you have faith over here and obedience over there. And no way to get from here to there because the necessary bridge to being a follow, follower of Jesus is obedience. If there is anything we should know by now, it is that a gospel of being made right with God through Jesus alone does not generate disciples. Following Jesus is what makes disciples. Learning to live like Jesus, to live in the kingdom of God now as he himself did. He then says this, if you want to be a person of grace, live a holy life of being like Jesus because the only way you can do that is on a steady diet of God's grace. Works of the kingdom live from grace. In other words, if you think the purpose of faith is simply so you can be forgiven and then go to a better place when you die, you've missed the point. The whole point of Christian life is to live in obedience to God here and now to bring heaven to earth. The Christian life that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the Father want for you, for me, for us, is one that is tangible, that is practical, that is earthy, that's grounded in the life we live. 
The evidence of our faith is not how many scripture verses you have memorized. It's not even about how much quiet time you have. It's even bigger than going to church. The evidence of faith is directly tied to our daily obedience to God. So if the first question is, will you put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you said yes, the very next question should be this. Now, will you live your life like he is the Lord and Savior of your life? That's a very different thing, isn't it? So how does this obedience help us fight the enemy? I want to invite the worship team back up here. We started with our, v, our verses for today in Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2 talk about a life, a giving of your whole body to God in worship. That means yourself. I want everybody to take your hand, put your hand up like this. I want you to feel your hand. Feel your hand. That's flesh. That's earth. That's real. That's natural. The evidence of your worship is that you give your body to Jesus because that's what Jesus did. God became flesh and laid his life down so that we could be made right with God. He did it ultimately so that we might lay our lives down at his feet. Now, here's why this matters. In the Lord's prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What's the next word? On earth as it is in heaven. Who does the Father's work on earth as it is in heaven? You and me. That's how God operates. God does the work of the kingdom through us. And now what Paul does is Paul gives us a glimpse, a glimpse of what daily obedience looks like. Now here's what I want you to hear. When you do the opposite of this, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily committing a sin but you're not living in obedience. Listen to what he says. Love must be sincere. In other words, you must have true love, not just feelings of love, but actions of love. We must hate what is evil and cling to what is good. By clinging to what is good, the idea is that we're holding on for dear life for what is good, what God determines is good because this is what it looks like when faith is in action. You guys ready for this? Verse 10, we are called to be devoted to one another in love, to honor one another above ourselves. Devotion means commitment. We must be committed to each other. We must, it's a, it's a tangible commitment. When I say that I am devoted to my wife, it doesn't just mean that my heart belongs to her. It means my hands and my feet, my eyes, my ears, my mouth, all of that belongs to her. Now we are called to be devoted to one another. This is why church membership is important. For some of you, the next right step in your faith is to become a committed, devoted part of a church community. If it's not here, find a church to belong to. Why? Because this is faith in action. Faith is being devoted. He then says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor by serving the Lord. He doesn't say keep your spiritual fervor by doing daily devotions. 
How we become excited and in love with Jesus is by actually serving Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. But that's hard. And now, this is not a push to get people to serve in the church. This is daily in your life serving Jesus with your finances, with your body, with your eyes. I think of my brother Lee Nagel. I love Lee. Three years ago, the Lord got a hold of Lee's life and Lee has been living faithfully for Jesus and God's doing some pretty remarkable things in his life. And it's not just Lee. There are so many of you here that God has gotten a hold of you and your passion for Jesus increases as you live your life for Jesus in the tangible, practical ways of Christ. He then says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. When things are tough, when your marriage is struggling, when you've just lost your job, when you've got a cancer diagnosis, you're joyful in hope, you're patient in the affliction. Why? Because you go to the source of hope, which is Jesus in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Generosity and hospitality matter to God. They are part of the kingdom life. When things get hard, how we treat others matters. Now here's where it gets really interesting. He then says, bless those who persecute you. Most of us think that the goal is if somebody persecutes you, just don't persecute back. No, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, says, no, don't just fight, not fight back. Bless them. Go out of your way to let them know that they are blessed by God. It's hard enough not to curse somebody who's harmed you, but could you imagine wishing them well and truly praying that God would work in their life? Don't just not curse them, actually bless them. This is obedience. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Our culture says the opposite. When somebody has success, usually we get jealous or bitter or upset because they have what we don't know. We're supposed to rejoice with people's successes. Sadly, what the world wants you to do is to rejoice when people are mourning and mourn when people are rejoicing. But the kingdom of God, the practical way in which we live and love Jesus means that we look and act differently. Live in harmony. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, live at peace. Don't take revenge. Leave room for God to do what God does. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. I used to think this last part was like the Indiana Jones, like opening the ark, you'll heap burning coals on their head. Do you want to know what it actually means to heap burning coals? In the ancient world, people kept warm by a fire. And what would happen is imagine two enemies are at war and at nighttime they didn't fight. And so what they would do is they'd go to their camps and you could see the smoke and the fire from your enemy's encampment. The idea here is, is that if you see their fire going out, you pick up coals, put them on a pot, you would carry them on your head and you would give them warm coals to stoke 
your enemies fire that they might be blessed. The way in which we take back ground lost to the enemy is by obeying Jesus in our everyday life. When we do that, God moves. God does something. Here's the last part. This is why I say this. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Your daily obedience to the Lord is how you take back ground. Not just sinning less, choosing to hear the Lord and say, okay, God, in faith, I'm going to obey. For some of you, that first step in obedience is getting in the water. That's why it's an act of obedience. Baptism is something we're called to. For some of you, that next right step is stepping into the lake. But it's not about what just happens in there. It's what there does for the rest of your life. From there on out. Would you stand with me? As we prepare our hearts to give to the Lord through our offering, here's what I want to challenge you with. Maybe you've given the enemy too much ground in your life. Here's the thing. Any ground is too much ground to the enemy. Maybe you've become apathetic in your faith. Maybe that apathy has moved into your love for Jesus or for your spouse. Maybe Satan's been winning way too many battles. Maybe you gave your heart to Jesus but have struggled giving him your head, your hands, your feet, your eyes and your ears, your money, your talents, your job. Maybe the next right step, the next act of obedience is to step into the waters of baptism because Jesus promises a new start, a new beginning, a new life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus and these words have not been easy, but following you was never called to be easy. Not once did you ever say it would be easy. In fact, you told us that if we truly follow you, the world will hate us because they hated you. These are not easy words. And yet, through your spirit, through your word, and through your church, we can live in obedience. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, let's end with worship. Come bring your tithes and offerings. And then, hopefully, we'll see you down at the park after Jennifer closes us out. <laughs>